several descriptors of, of Stephen. We see, so in, in verse 3, you have to keep your Bibles in front of you today. In verse 3, it says uh, that he was full of spirit and with the spirit and wisdom. Verse 5 says he's full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and now in, in verse 8, it says he's full of God's grace and power. Like Stephen is full of it. In a good way, you know, that's a good, a good full. Uh, but even as we look at, at, at the story of, of Stephen, uh, I would encourage you to, to not to despise small beginnings, especially when it comes to being used by God. Uh, Stephen just started serving where needed. Like there was a need, he was uh, appointed. And I imagine if, if they'd come to Stephen, like, Stephen, we want you to be in charge of uh, the food pantry. And he'd been like, mm, I'm a bit too talented for that. A little too educated, a bit too spiritual. That's a blow, you know, what I believe God wants me to do something awesome. Uh, and I think there is a desire in us as we, as we follow God. We want to do big things for God, and that is a good desire. But what God puts before us to do, we should do it faithfully and serve faithfully in that. You never know what, how God's going to use that. And so for Stephen, it started as uh, a ministry uh, serving food to, to widows, but then he finds himself in front of a crowd apparently he had more giftings than, than just distributing food. Um, and we see here, uh, so let's go to verse 11, Acts 6, verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, you've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I feel like our, uh, our politicians in Washington and, and some of our local politicians as well must have taken a page out of the uh, playbook of these guys. Like if, if we can't win the argument, let's just start a smear campaign or... Um, you know, when arguments fail, mud is often an excellent substitute, right? And, and both sides do it. I, already for the, uh, are you guys getting mailers about the election coming up next month for, for governor? Like, man, if either one of those guys gets selected, we're in trouble. For if you read, if you believe all the stuff you, you see about them. Um, but the, their claim is that in verse 13, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. And this is a serious double accusation. Because the two things that the Jews uh, took most serious was the temple, the holy place, and the law, the law of Moses. And, and so they're saying that uh, Stephen is speaking against them. And, and to do that is blasphemy. And so they don't, uh, they're not putting up with it. Um, and then in verse 14, they said, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Again, that's the temple. And change the customs Moses handed down to us. The customs, that's, that's the law. Um, and so Stephen was teaching about Jesus, what Jesus had already taught about himself when it came to the temple and to the law. Uh, so just for a moment, before we go any further, we need to know what Jesus said about the temple and about the law and what got Jesus in, in trouble, in hot water with the leaders. Uh, one thing Jesus said is that he would replace the temple. That's a bold statement. Uh, and when, um, when Jesus stood before, um, or when when he was arrested, and the accusation was that Jesus had said he would destroy the temple. And Jesus did say that in John 2. He, Jesus answered them, said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. But the temple he spoke of was, was his body. 
And so that he said that he would replace the temple. Because in the past, people came to the temple to meet with God. And now with Jesus, we don't need the temple because we have Jesus. And then Jesus said that he would fulfill the law. And he was accused multiple times of disrespecting the law, especially when it came to things like the Sabbath. Uh, but Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. Uh, and in Hebrews, we read that Jesus, his death was the fulfillment of all the, the priesthood and the sacrificial system. I'm thankful that we don't have to sacrifice uh, bulls and, and goats anymore to meet with God and to have our sins forgiven. And so uh, Jesus taught that the temple and the law would be uh, superseded. Now, people might think, well, to teach that, that's going to be quite offensive. Like he's, he's denigrating the temple and the law. But, but Jesus, by saying that he is the fulfillment of the law, he actually elevates the temple. Like the purpose, the whole purpose of the temple, the whole purpose of the law was to point to me, is what Jesus said. Um, and so Stephen, we're not sure exactly uh, what he was saying, but from their accusation and from his response, uh, we're pretty sure that Stephen was going along these same lines. Um, and then I love verse 15 where it says, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now you might think, well, that's nice. I wonder what uh, moisturizer he was using. Like what, what essential oil, right, to get the glow. Uh, a little peppermint behind the ear. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, maybe you don't. Um, but who else in Scripture's face shined? I remember who else had a, a face that was bright. I, I, I heard it in the back. Moses. In Exodus 34, when Moses was coming off the temple, and coming off, coming off the mountain, he had just met with God, and in his hands he was carrying the law of God, and his face radiated, Exodus 34 says. And so God's approval was on Moses when he brought the law down uh, from the mountain, and by, by Stephen's face radiating, I think God is saying, my approval is also on my servant Stephen as he interprets the law. Amen? Uh, it's almost like God was defending Stephen against the accusation right there in front of everybody for everybody to see. And we'll come back to that idea in a moment. Uh, and before we get to the what of the, Stephen's response, I want to look at how Stephen responded to these ac accusations. What was his demeanor? I mean, he was a man under pressure. His life hung in the balance. I mean, he didn't know if he was going to live, if he was going to die. And there's a couple things that we're going to see here. One, that he was bold. Like, he was not afraid to tell the truth. And later we're going to see that he called him stiff-necked. And, which, you're like, oh, that's, you know, I've had a stiff neck before. But that was a uh, quite, he calls them un, un, people of uncircumcised heart. And uh, so he, he wasn't afraid to tell the truth. And then uh, it says his face was like the face of an angel, but he had no ill will towards his opponents. He had no ill will. Even though he told them the truth, he, he wasn't wishing their, their downfall. In fact, he, he prays for them was his, his demeanor. He was full of grace and, and power. And so then we turn to chapter 7, and this is Stephen's defense. And if you're looking at chapter 7 in your Bible, you're going to see that his defense is like 53 verses. There is no way that we can cover 53 verses today. And everyone said, amen. You know what I'm saying? The Broncos start at 11. Let's get it going, Matty. Uh, so we're not going to do that, but what I would like to do is point out just a few of the themes that we see throughout these verses and then see how the story concludes with, uh, with Stephen. So your homework this week is to read the entire 
Well, just read chapter 6 and chapter 7 to get uh, an idea of what is happening here. So the accusation, he's speaking against the temple, he's speaking against the law, and in response, Stephen recounts the story of the people of God. He goes all the way back to the book of Genesis and gives these different accounts, these different characters, and and how they were treated. And so uh, one of his main themes that you'll see as you read is that Stephen is saying, we don't need the temple to find God. We don't need the temple any longer to find God. And he does this. He says, what about Abraham in in verse 2? Abraham didn't have a temple, and he met with God in a foreign country. There There was no temple there. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. And then he says, Joseph in Egypt. I mean, Egypt also, not the promised land, but God was with him. They sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him. So this is all Stephen recounting the story of the people of God. And he says, Moses was in the wilderness. God met with him in a burning bush. There was no temple. But God said, this is holy ground to him. And after four, it says, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And even after the temple was built, uh, Stephen reminds him of what the prophets had said, what Isaiah said. And and Isaiah, he, he quotes it there, the most high does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. And then verse 50, has my hand not made all these things. And so Stephen, he, he goes through history and shows that, that while the temple was important, God was doing other things outside of the temple and outside of Israel. And, and God's presence isn't limited to a particular place. And, and the God of the Old Testament was always calling people to an adventure, to come follow me and, and see what happens. And I think God still wants us to follow him wherever he's calling us today and, and not um, just settle, not just be comfortable. And so in, in what he's doing here, he's setting uh, the stage for this, this new Jesus movement to go into all the nations and to all races without distinction. Because what, what God wanted to do, there was no place for an institution that only allowed one group of people in. And that's what the temple did. It only allowed the Jews to come in. And so what Stephen, he's laying the groundwork, this framework for, like God is bigger than just the temple. Then what, what has been done here in the past, God is doing something here. God is on the move. And uh, there's a tendency even in churches um, to make it like about the buildings or about our, our history. And uh, one of the benefits of a, a new church is that we don't have a history. <laughs> so there, there is nobody saying, we can't do that. There's nobody saying, I gave money to that building. Like we don't have that, that, that problem. And some churches have that issue because it's like it's about the building, it's about the temple, and God wants to do something beyond the walls of just when we gather here together. Um, so Stephen's saying you don't need the temple in order to find God, and this creates a problem for the Jewish people because the only way that you could be right with God was to go to the temple and to do sacrifice. How, if there is no, no temple, there is no God for me to know and to be, uh, to be in right relationship with. And then a second theme of Stephen's speech is that the law of God is good, but you've never kept it. You have never kept it. And then, so again, going back to Moses, he said, we had the law, but you didn't obey it. Our ancestors refused to obey him, Stephen told them. Instead, they rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. And then he goes with the prophets. The the prophets said, you didn't obey the law. Uh, Verse 43 says, you have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, uh, Rephan. And, And so he's quoting the prophet Amos. And so Stephen is saying, the law is good, You've never kept the law. So there's a, there's a problem here, um, and it's not the law. 
but you, you have never obeyed it. And if you're saved by obeying the law, then we've got a problem. So we don't need a temple to meet with God. Yes, we need the law, but we can't keep the law. And then uh, Stephen's kind of final theme that I, I see in these verses, and there, there's others too. I mean, there's 53 verses. There's a lot going on. Is that every time God sends a deliverer, the deliverer is rejected and persecuted by the very people that he was sent to save. God's deliverers are rejected. Again, Joseph. God wanted to use him to deliver his people. What did his brothers do? Sold him into slavery. You think you've got family problems. Talk to, talk to Joseph. Moses, he was appointed by God to deliver his people. And the first time that he tries to intervene, he ends up having to flee to the desert for his life. And then when he, after he leads the people out of Egypt, you would think, like, Moses, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one. But he goes up, 40 days he's gone, and the people come to Aaron, and Stephen recounts this. And it's like, hey, we don't know what happened to that guy Moses. Make us an idol. So even, I mean, they had uh, Moses, uh, Joseph, and then uh, Stephen mentions David. And, and in this uh, passage here, he doesn't talk much about David as a deliverer and, and spending time in the wilderness, but much of David's life was spent on the run before he became king and even after he became king when his son tried to get him out. And like the people rose up with the son and, and he went into the, the wilderness. And every deliverer, every prophet is rejected by Israel. And that's where Stephen uh, concludes in verse 52. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? Acts chapter 7, verse 51. We just went through like 50 verses. I'm doing all right, huh? Uh, verse 51 is where it gets intense. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You, have received the, you who have received the law that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. So in verse 51 and verse 53, he lays out the problem. And then verse 52, we're going to see is the solution. The problem is that he says you are stiff-necked and uncircumcised, you have uncircumcised hearts. That doesn't say a whole lot to us, uh, but for the, the Jewish people to say you're uncircumcised hearts basically means uh, you're not circumcised, so you're just like somebody who's not part of the people of God. You're just like people who don't respond to what God is trying to say. Uh, you have all your external rituals, you're concerned about the laws and compliance, but your hearts are filled with, with fear, pride, cruelty. It hasn't worked. Verse 53, you haven't kept the law. You need a new heart. You need to be born again. You need something that you don't have. And so what's the solution? That's verse 50. We see it in verse 52, only just briefly. And this is a summary of everything that he's been saying. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. So what's the answer? The answer is the righteous one. And, and this term for Jesus, the righteous one, isn't used a whole lot in Scripture. And, and there's many terms that Stephen could have used to talk about Jesus, the, the Son of Man, the, the Son of God, uh, Messiah, but he uses righteous one, and I think it's intentional. So what does it mean to be righteous? The righteous one fulfills the law, and to be, that's what it means to be righteous. And how do you fulfill the law? There's only two ways you fulfill the law. You obey, obey it completely, or you pay the penalty. Two ways to fulfill the law. Um, and so living in, in Denver, the city of Denver has this really cool tech, technology. And they've got these cameras at intersections. 
You know what I'm talking about? Or these cars that they move around different places, and it gives you like a warning because if uh, it tracks your speed, right? Or sees if you go through the red light. Now, if you happen to go past one of these vehicles and you're breaking the law, uh, it takes this very nice picture of your license plate and of the driver. And then it sends the license plate information to the DMV, sees who the registered owner is, comes back, and automatically sends you a letter with a notice of a fine on it because you've paid the penalty. Now, Matthew, you're thinking, now, Matthew, you seem intimately, uh, like you have some knowledge here. Do you work for the city? No. But I've received a letter <laughs> in the mail. It wasn't my picture. It was Eloris. <laughs> the law had been broken. Somehow I still had to pay. Uh, there are only two ways to fulfill the law. You obey, which I recommend you do, or you pay the penalty. And once the penalty is paid, once we had paid the fine, the law, the law no longer has a hold on our life. Um, it has no claim on me. And Jesus was the one who obeyed the law perfectly. And so the law had no claim on his life. Um, he was righteous. He no one else has ever lived a, a perfect life. Um, and when we put our trust in Jesus, that same righteousness of Jesus becomes our righteousness. I mean, at the moment that we believe, all the penalty of our disobedience is what theologians say is imputed to him. And all the blessings of his righteousness comes to us. And now he is the temple. He fulfills the temple because he is the final sacrifice. He is the final temple. He is the righteous one, the fulfiller of the law. And so Stephen tells him this. How do they respond? Stephen, you're right. Get on their knees. Let's repent. No. Verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. It was the first Christian martyr. How was Stephen, Stephen able to, to have that demeanor in that, in that moment? Um, just as he was about to die, verse 56. I love, I love this verse. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We've been talked uh, a couple times in the book of Acts. We've talked about the right hand of God and, and what that means and what that picture is. And, and it is the, uh, the throne room of God where Jesus is above all and over all and supreme, the right hand of God. So it's the throne room, but it's not just the throne room. It's the courtroom. And as Americans, we believe in, in separation of powers. And we have different, uh, different branches in our government. But for most of history... And even still today, in, in most places, the throne room is the courtroom. And, and Stephen has been arguing that we don't need the temple. And his vision of Jesus is just one final blow because Jesus at God's right hands means that we have an 
a way of access to God. Um, and throughout the New Testament, Jesus is either about himself. Um, he says that he is at, he, he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. Um, but there's something about Stephen's vision that is unique. In every other mention of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is either seated or it doesn't say. But in this account, Stephen says he sees him standing at the right hand of God. Now, you know, like Matthew, what difference does it make? Standing, seating, he's at the right hand of God. Well, the, the picture of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God means that Jesus, his work on the cross, his work of salvation is finished. There was nothing left for him to do, so he sat down at the right hand of the Father. But here, here he is, is, is standing. And, and if you're in a courtroom standing, what are you doing? You're, you're talking. More precisely, you're defending. He's advocating. Jesus gets up from his throne to come to Stephen's defense. Uh, one, one theologian put it like this, while Stephen was confessing Christ before men, he sees Christ confessing Stephen before God. While Stephen was confessing Christ before men, he sees Christ confessing Stephen before God. First John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There's that word again, righteous one. He can advocate for us in the heavenly courtroom because he is the only one who has the credentials to be there, the righteous one. He has fulfilled the law twice over. He fulfilled it in his obedience of being perfect, but then he took the penalty that we deserve. So he is the righteous one, and Jesus is our advocate at all times. So Stephen has just seen a vision. I mean, he sees a vision of what he's just been talking about. He says, Jesus is the righteous one, and then all of a sudden he sees the righteous one doing what the righteous one does, advocating for Stephen. And when, when you believe in, in Jesus, when you have your sins imputed to Jesus, and when his righteousness has been imputed to you, there is nothing to fear. There is nothing to fear. Now, you might be thinking, Matthew, I don't, uh, I don't know if I even believe in this heavenly courtroom thing. That's all right. But let's think about the implications of that for a moment. Uh, if, if there is a heavenly courtroom or if there isn't a heavenly courtroom. Um, Arthur Miller, he wrote a play, a Broadway play called After the Fall about 50 years ago. And it was a very personal play. And most people thought it was based on his life and his marriage to Marilyn Monroe uh, and, her, and her death because that's the same fate that falls the main character's wife in the story. Uh, in the story, the main character is a lawyer, and at one point, he's trying to tell someone why he is depressed and why he finds life so hard. And this is what he says. Because for many years, I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover and a good father, finally how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. The law bench, the heavenly courtroom. No judge in sight. And all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. So what he's saying is, like, when I realize that there was no God, uh, that there is no heavenly court, that the bench is empty, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm here by accident. There's, there's no purpose. Someday I die, you rot, no one remembers you, you're forgotten about, and that leads me to despair. All the bad things that are happening, they'll never be put right. 
in the world because there is no judge on the bench. There's no heavenly courtroom. Um, so if there is no heavenly courtroom, what hope is there for you? What hope is there for the world? But if there is a heavenly courtroom, what hope is there for you? Outside of Jesus, none, because none of us live like we should. Uh, now, most of us have smartphones. Um, and I've heard stories of people talking about a product or a place, not searching, like on the internet, and then the next day in their feed, like shows an advertisement. For, you know what I'm talking about? It's kind of scary. Like, I didn't even type it. How did they? Somebody's listening. All the time. Now, what if when you come to the end and you had to give an account for your life, uh, stand before the judge. And this was a very fair trial, like not even based on Bible standards, but just based on the things that you had said that your phone recorded, that you'd said about other people and how they should live and how they should treat you. And I can't believe that person did this and I can't believe they did that. And your phone you, plays back and that's what they use as, as the standard for judging you. None of us live up to our own standard. None of us live up to our own standard. Um, so when, if there is no heavenly bench, what hope is there for you? If there is a heavenly bench, what hope is there for you? It's despair either way without Christ. But Stephen, Stephen knows he has an advocate. Uh, he, knows, he knows he doesn't stand before the bench condemned because the righteous one has already paid the penalty. And nobody in the story speaks up for Stephen. Stephen is alone, but he knows he has an advocate, and he sees Jesus standing there. And Jesus is telling the Father the verdict for Stephen. Because Jesus saw, or Stephen saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father, it didn't matter what anyone else thought about him. It didn't matter what was happening to him. Who cares what they think? I'm commended. So the earthly court is saying he's guilty. The heavenly court is saying he's innocent. The earthly court condemns him. The heavenly court, the true court, the high court commends him. The earthly court is temporary. The heavenly court is eternal. And Jesus is saying he's innocent because he's mine. I have paid the penalty. The law has no hold on him. And that's why we affirm with the New Testament when it later says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, have you, have you ever needed an advocate in your life, have you ever needed someone to stand up for you and maybe there was nobody to be an advocate? Like maybe you needed the church to stand up for you and the, and the church wasn't there to advocate for you. Maybe as a, an immigrant, you needed an advocate and there was no one to stand for you. Maybe as a, a fatherless child, a motherless child, you needed someone to stand for you and there was no one to stand for you. And I can almost see Jesus standing there, sitting there, watching Stephen and Jesus stands. I'll, I will be your advocate. And when in the back of the, your mind, you might hear things like, no one could ever love you. Jesus is standing. Look at all the mistakes you've made. Jesus stands for you. Your, your kids, they don't even like you. You're a failure. Jesus stands for you. You're so unattractive. You're going to die alone, and nobody's going to care. Jesus 
stands for you. You'll, you'll never measure up. Jesus is standing for you. How many times have you told God, God, I'll never do that again. I, I'm going to do it right this time. I'm going to turn my life around. But then you do it again, and you're going to keep doing it again. But Jesus is standing for you. And when shame and guilt and fear and despair are knocking on our door, Jesus is standing. He's advocating for you, saying, she's mine. He's mine. And to the degree, to the degree that you understand that Jesus, the righteous one, is right now at the right hand of the Father, he is advocating for you. He is advocating for you. You'll be able to face anything, come hell or high water. Jesus stands for me. That's good news. The bench is not empty, and we have an advocate. And just one final observation. Did you notice how Stephen and his death, how it looks a lot like Jesus' death? Time and time again, Jesus didn't defend himself. Stephen didn't defend himself. He talked about Jesus. Jesus didn't pray for deliverance. Stephen didn't pray for deliverance. Jesus prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Stephen's prayer, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. Stephen prayed, do not hold the sin against them. In so many ways, the disciple reflected the master. And I can't help but thinking of 1 John 3 that says, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And Stephen saw Jesus. Stephen was like Jesus. And then he died. And the text says that he fell asleep. I mean, I can't imagine the scene. They're yelling at the top of their lungs, throwing rocks, and he's probably getting bloodied up. But the unexpected beauty and peace of Stephen in his death, saying he fell asleep. And when he fell asleep, Jesus was standing, welcoming him home. Well done. Well done. Jesus was and is our advocate. Would you just take a moment to close your eyes and reflect just for a moment. if there's anyone here today that says, Matthew, I want to put my trust in Jesus. I believe that he died for me, that he took the penalty that I deserved, and today I want to trust him. I want Jesus to be my advocate, so I'm going to put my faith in him. And if you know heart of hearts that you haven't measured up to your own standards, let alone God's standards. Say, I need, I need forgiveness. I need a Savior. We don't do this very often. I want to give an opportunity today. I believe the Holy Spirit is at work in hearts. ask you to stand or to come forward, but if, if you wouldn't mind just lifting your hand and say, Matthew, I want to put my trust in Jesus as my Savior today. Would you lift up your hand so I can pray with you? Amen. Amen. Thank you. 
Father, I thank you that you are near, that you are standing. Jesus is standing, that he sees and that he is our advocate. And I pray even now that those who raise their hands to put their, their trust in you, that you would make the salvation real to them. confess their sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all sins and to cleanse us of unrighteousness. So even now, as you confess your sins, as you put your trust in Jesus, the Bible says that you are born again, that your hearts are coming alive, and that God's Spirit is coming to live in you.